0: It's, um, it's kind of a new development in my life. Uh, I have been enjoying essential oils. It's probably, probably, I don't know. I mean, you know, I guess my, I guess my take on essential oils is that like, uh, I think I was always very skeptical about the whole thing because, uh, people make a lot of claims about them. Um, but if you just sort of treat them like, uh, it's a nice, uh, it's a nice smell. I get a lot of flack for it, man. I, every every time I mention it, people make fun of me. Um, well,
1: isn't, it just seems like there's like an essential oils culture. <laughs>
0: yeah. And it's very scammy. Of. It's, you know, it's, uh, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's articulated to the whole sort of like, you know, homeopathic medicine. And, and I mean, do you have stuff.
1: friends who are in the scene? Do you know anybody else that you respect? Who uh, is- No. dabbling in essential oils
0: well so i think that you know i think that the longer story is or the way that i sort of came back into contact with essential oils after first being exposed (laughs) to them by my my mother and like you know (laughs) when i was a child um is uh there's like a renewed interest in in plant oils uh and terpenes which are like the smelly things in plants and there's a lot of research being done into them, and I think mainly as a result of cannabis legalization in various okay. states and this whole sort of like CBD craze and all that okay. stuff. Okay,
1: so my question is this. How many listeners do you think we just lost by your revelation <laughs> that
0: essential oils <laughs> Probably got? a lot. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, I think people lose respect for me when I tell them that I, I enjoy essential oils. Um, <laughs> you know, not that anybody had any respect for me in the first place, but, <laughs> you know.
1: Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the 540 mostly anonymous American billionaires. I'm Joe. And I'm Chad. Welcome back. It's great to be here with you.
0: Yeah, it is. Um, You want to talk about Billionaires in the News? Okay, Billionaires in the News.
1: Billionaires in the News. Okay, you want to tell everybody what we're we're doing this week for Billionaires in the News?
0: Today we're talking about A a New York Times piece that came out this week, uh, they did a whole bunch of questions with uh, Democratic candidates for the presidency uh, that is called Meet the Candidates. Uh, I can't imagine anyone wanting to watch all of this. Uh, I watch. There's a lot of them to meet. There are a lot of them to meet. uh, And I have only listened to like, you know, parts of question number 18. Uh, which we're going to talk about today. And that almost, uh, drove me to, to the edge of madness. Um, it's a weird
1: time to be watching politics news. Cause like every time I, I don't watch the news all the time, but every time I turn on the TV, there's like another person I don't recognize and don't think I've ever seen before. And it's like, yeah. Presidential candidate.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, it's it's almost worth like it's, at this point, it's almost worth asking, like, what is the carbon cost of, you know, of the presidential <laughs> yeah. campaign? Because there's so much, uh, you know, there's so much hot air being wasted and, and like and so much, you know, so much data <laughs> yeah. being generated and stored. Like, you know, it, it just uh, it, none of this information is is useful. Uh, but we did think it would be at least interesting to talk about. Uh, the answers that these candidates gave to question number 18, which is, uh, does anyone deserve to have a billion dollars? Uh, the question is worded in a weird way. Like the the word deserve is kind of vague. Um, and uh, and a lot of the candidates choose to to z- at least of the ones that I've watched, choose to zero in on the uh, the vagueness of the term deserve. <laughs> so they don't have to answer the question. Hmm. Um uh, but uh, without forecasting too much, I thought we could just listen. We're not going to listen to all, you know, I don't know how many there are. There's like, I don't know, 15 or 20 of them at this point. Let's just pick some and then I'm not going to even listen to the whole answers here. We'll just play and, and whenever you want to.
1: I and, and so I haven't even looked at this yet. I mean, I knew we were going to do this, but I haven't heard any of these answers. So...
0: So um you're going to be hearing this for the first time. I'm going to be hearing most of this for the first time. So the first uh the first one, how about uh Steve Bullock? Do you know who that is? Just
1: another person I've never heard of and wouldn't recognize.
0: He is uh he was the governor of Montana. Okay. Uh, so I'll play his answer uh to the question, does anyone deserve to have a billion dollars?
2: To me at least it's not about um it's about everybody actually deserves to have enough money and the opportunity to feed their family and live a better life than what they lived uh, growing up. And I think far too often now. You know, I grew up in the nineteen seventies. Ninety percent of thirty-year-olds were doing better than their parents were. Now it's only half. Forty-four. I think
1: we get yeah. the idea. Yeah. So uh,
0: uh, no, no answer. <laughs> so
1: that's that's totally evasive.
0: Yeah. Do I think uh, anybody deserves to have a billion dollars? I'll tell you what I do believe, uh, that people should have access to food. And it's like, yeah, that is true. Um, all right, let's move on. Here's another guy uh, that you might not have heard of, Michael Bennett, uh, senator of uh, from Colorado. Uh, let's see what he says. He looks exactly the same as Steve Bullock, by the way
2: people in a capitalist country are going to have a billion dollars, but we've got the greatest income inequality that we've had uh, in a century. We have no economic mobility left in this country, and for 40 years, the bottom 90% of Americans haven't shared in any of the economic growth. That is the central... Challenge
1: of it's like we, we live in a capitalist system. Obviously, there's going to be massively, massively concentrated wealth, and that's just kind of the deal, right?
2: Yeah.
0: You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, hey, what do you expect me to do about that? I, what do you expect me, the president, to do? <laughs> I don't have any sort of influence over this natural outcome of the society that we don't in any way design ourselves or make choices about how it should be uh, structured. It's just like that's it's just a fact that that's how it is. Um, okay so let's let's listen to another one let's do another one Beto is next uh the cute boy uh Beto is up isn't it better I think that that's like my Pittsburgh accent coming out Be- Beto people make fun of me for uh saying short e's with a long a sound <laughs> so that's probably my problem anyway
2: that's a good question um I don't know that anyone deserves to have a, a billion dollars um I think we have a concentration of wealth and power and privilege in this country that we haven't seen since the last Gilded Age. And that concentration of wealth and power works counter to our democracy. So both from a perspective of making sure that we have the resources to invest in people and communities so that everyone is educated enough and well enough
0: all right so my question my question
1: about this because i've heard this a lot recently too is how effective is it to be comparing the current situation to the gilded age (laughs) like if you were going to follow your average person on the street what do you think you think 25 percent of americans even know what the gilded age is
0: (laughs) yeah no i don't Uh, (laughs) yeah i mean i guess that's a good point that's a good rhetorical point um, I mean, I do. I will. I do think, you know, I do think his answer is actually a little bit better in the sense that, like, he does say that there's an incommensurability yeah, yeah, yeah. between wealth consolidation and democracy. Like he he does. He identifies it as a problem. But then he goes then like you can just hear him fall back onto familiar talking points. And he's like, and that means we have to invest in communities, which like I don't know. I don't know what that means. Um, I mean, like you know, but he did. He
1: did say. Really good, but... He did say that he didn't feel like anybody deserves to have a billion dollars.
0: Yeah, a little bit better than some of the others that you, we heard. Uh, okay, next is uh, Cory Booker, and uh, I remember this one, and this is bananas. Okay. So here we go. All right.
2: Um, I think that we make a mistake in this country when we uh, confuse wealth with worth, and I think the uh, nation and the values we have are really being challenged right now that not only people that mistake wealth with worth, they mistake uh, celebrity with significance. And so <laughs> I think the strivings we should have should be to make a contribution, make a difference in the world. What? Uh, so, uh, you know, how yeah. much money you have to me is uh, inconsequential to what you do with that. And this idea of shared prosperity, not just economically, but Share prosperity in terms of well-being, in terms of um,
1: meaning
2: in life. Uh, I think that this is a challenging point in American society where we see forces trying to erode, erode uh, what gives life uh, meaning and substance. And I think that's why we're seeing this rise in deaths of despair from opioid addiction to suicides. And in- <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, my God. I don't even Dude, know. That right? is like, just nonsense. That's like me. Like. A terrible day in the classroom lecturing where i just go <laughs> off the
0: rails <laughs> yeah I, i've been there yeah <laughs> like man does anybody deserve to be ha- have a billion dollars like he ends up talking about Opioid addiction and suicide and like it just <laughs> he just and celebrity he, and like he's what he's just doing everything he
1: possibly can not to answer that question. He's just yeah. like, got to keep going. Got to keep
0: talking. Yeah. <laughs> got to keep saying words. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> keep those words going. And then the other person can't talk. <laughs> that was um, miserable.
1: OK, uh, let's do the next one.
0: Uh next is uh Eric Swalwell. Uh he might be the youngest uh per only 38 years old, a guy from California. Uh so let's uh hear okay, what he has let's, to say. Let's
1: hear let's hear this guy.
2: Sure, this is America. If, if you work hard, uh this should be a country where, you know, your potential is limitless. However, my problem is that uh it's a top floor economy and success is more and more confined just to the top floors and we have a tax system that reinforces that. And so I want it to be a country where anyone who works hard can see that add up to something. And for some people, if it's an idea good enough or uh, work hard enough, sure. uh, You still, you know, don't mind someone being a buddy.
1: Okay. So here's what, here's what upsets me about this. You know, the idea that it being America and the ceiling should be limitless seems to me like so deeply problematic, because the world is not limitless. <laughs> there were there were there are clear oh, limits yeah. to everything on the planet. And if you know, like, if I were talking to that guy right now, here's what I, I would sort of walk him through a series <laughs> of questions. You know, I would be like, first, do you feel like people living on the planet now have a responsibility to f- future people who haven't been born yet? Hey, see what he says. He's going to say yes. Question two, do you believe in climate change? He's going to say yes. Do you believe that buying material goods contributes on some level to climate change? He's going to say yes. So if you have a billion dollars, should you be able to spend that money on whatever it is that you want? He's going to say yes. And it just leads to the, the only conclusion, which is the more money you have, the more you're contributing to this awful thing that you know is happening. And it's like, you believe that you should do that ad infinitum because this is America? You know what I'm saying?
0: There, there's this very weird thing where um, Democrats will talk about that, like they'll talk about climate change as if it's the most serious existential crisis uh, that we face as a species, uh, uh, as a planet, and it is. Uh, but then they will immediately begin to fetishize uh, economic growth, it's like oh, we 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 need uh, economic growth. Like the only thing that's crazy. That... <laughs> it what is? I mean, they're they're contradictory statements. Uh, you have any any requests you want you want to hear any more? let's hear some of the women all right do you know um Marianne Williamson yeah sort of she's uh, well. Oprah's personal spiritual advisor and self-help author um wow uh she uh she she believes in righteous commerce. Uh, she's also she the other day she, uh, she called um, <laughs> mandatory vaccinations uh, Stalinist. I believe she said. Uh, oh, great. Okay. Um, but uh, it's very funny. Uh, her answer is great because uh, you can hear her thinking of Oprah in the background. Uh, listen to her answer.
2: Yes, there are people who deserve to have a billion dollars. I do believe that there is such a thing as righteous commerce. The problem is not that some people in America are rich.
0: The problem in America is that not enough people can get rich.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like there are some practitioners of righteous commerce, yeah.
0: namely Oprah. <laughs> mainly, <laughs> mainly Oprah. Uh, let's move on to uh, Warren and, uh, and then we'll listen to Bernie.
2: In a world where kids are not getting opportunities where schools have tiles that are falling down and teachers that are underpaid. Um, When kids are struggling with a trillion and a half dollars in student loan debt, then i got a lot of problems with billionaires who are not paying a fair share. But look at it the other way. In a world where every kid gets an opportunity, where schools are really good for all our kids, where we don't crush people on student loan debt, where wages are going up across the economy, where... When companies do better, their employees do better. In that world, we can have billionaires, and it's great, and we can celebrate.
1: OK. OK. So yeah. here, here's my question. Yeah. OK. Why would we ever look at it the other way? <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> right. Looking at it the other way is just a fantasy Beyond all fantasies, like if everyone had everything that they needed and the world was just like filled with immeasurable wealth, yeah, then it would be great to have billionaires because who knows, everyone might be a billionaire in that reality. You know, it's like, what? Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Elizabeth
0: no, I know. I mean, I mean, there's like, some real sort of like uh, magical thinking going on there. Uh, yeah, well, y- I, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it gives me sort of pause. Uh, yeah. You know, Elizabeth Warren has been gaining a lot of popularity lately and and like she says a ton of stuff that seems really good to me or sounds good. Um, but like the the. The lack of her ability to make a structural critique and to say that like billionaires themselves or massive concentrations of wealth themselves are a kind of a, are a problem for democracy in the sense that people with those large concentrations of wealth. Uh, tend to uh, promote uh, ideas and policies that maintain the status quo because that's what has made them wealthy, right? And they're motivated by... Uh, self interest and profit like that 's why we 're in the mess that we are currently in <laughs> so let 's listen to bernie um you know i i 'll say this ahead of time uh love him or hate him his message discipline is unrivaled uh he he, he does not ever get distracted or veer away from his uh central message so here's uh here 's him
2: uh in america today we have grotesque levels of income and wealth inequality. <laughs> Tonight, you're going to have some 500,000 people sleeping out on the street. And you've got about half of the people in this country living paycheck to paycheck. So we need an economic system, uh, and we need a tax system, uh, which demands that the wealthiest people in this country start paying their fair share of taxes. My guess is when you have that, you're not going to have too many billionaires left.
0: Basically, the answer is I'm going to legislate them out of existence, uh, which I appreciate, you know (laughs) It is true, that dude is focused Yeah, yeah, he is focused, (laughs) yeah Okay, Chad, you're up first today All right. Um, So, uh, like we decided last week, I have Edward C. Johnson III. He goes by Ned. uh, Ned Johnson, so I'll refer to him that way. Ned Johnson. Ned Johnson III. Good old
1: all-American Ned Johnson. Neddy
0: boy. Um, But I did find (laughs) that that, uh, as soon as I started to research him, Uh, immediately noticed that his daughter, Abigail Johnson, uh, is also on our list and she in fact is richer than him. The net worth of Ned is 8.4 billion and Abigail, uh, is 16 billion. So she's about twice as rich as as he is. Uh, yeah, she's the fifth richest woman, uh, in the United States. Uh, no, in the world. Uh, um, And so I'm going to treat them both together and, uh, and that will be short and sweet because I actually don't have much to say at all in way of biography. Um, I'll give you a little bit, um, Ned Johnson, Uh, ran Fidelity Investments until 2016 when his daughter, Abigail, took over. Uh, uh, Edward Johnson II, his father, uh, started Fidelity Investments. It's a Boston company. They've always lived in Boston. Both Edward and Ned and Abigail uh, went to prep schools in Boston and then went to Harvard uh, and got undergraduate degrees and then immediately went into Fidelity and worked there. Uh, For their entire career. So, you know, nothing particularly interesting there. Uh, If you read about them, you come across articles. uh, They are both, as most of the billionaires that we talk about, are uh, intensely private people. And that gets mentioned in a lot of articles. They don't do a lot of interviews, although Abigail has been a little bit more involved uh, since she took over. She's done a couple of interviews both of them donate money to Republicans, uh, Ned much more so. But uh, Abigail uh, also gives regularly to Republican causes. Uh, she's given some money to Democrats, uh, although not nearly as much uh, as far as like scandals or personal life stuff goes or direct uh, uh, vocal involvement in politics. There's not really anything there. Um The takeaway from their biographies is that they've been running one of the largest companies in the world for like a hundred years and nobody knows much about them.
1: Okay, well, what did you find out for today that's worth talking about?
0: Yeah, so uh, I'll talk about fidelity investments for a minute because it, it, it does I think it is worth like beginning to appreciate uh, just how large it is. Their main business is retirement accounts and, and other mutual fund investing. So like what you do is you open a fidelity account and you put money into it and then that makes money for you through the investing that Fidelity does on your behalf um, and mm-hmm. like any other mutual fund that we've talked about. Um, Fidelity is massive. Uh, They have $6.7 trillion in customer asset value. So like the money that customers have put in under various uh, types of investments adds up to $6.7 trillion. Um, They themselves, the company owns $2.46 trillion. In has two point six trillion in assets under management. That's a that is an insane amount of money. They are the largest provider in the U.S. of uh, retirement accounts. Uh, they have one point six seven trillion uh, in uh, contribution assets to their plans, their retirement plans. The sec- that's one point six seven trillion. The second largest company is TIAA, and they have four hundred and sixty five billion. So, Fidelity is three times as large as its next closest competitor. Wow. Um, if you Google Fidelity investment scandal, uh, <laughs> you get tons of stuff. They they take advantage of customers and and cheat them in a lot of ways through fees. They've had a bunch of scandals with like weird fees that they charge and then don't tell anyone about. Uh, they make risky investments uh, that benefit the company and not customers, uh, and they've been disciplined for that in the past and um the the biggest thing and this was like a 2016 2017 scandal and this was probably the worst one that they've had in a while uh they have a private venture capital fund uh and that so like that cap, that venture capital firm would compete directly against the interests of the customers who are investing in like retirement plans and stuff so the way that that worked is that this venture capital fund would get into a stock at a very low price, uh, and mm-hmm. then they would use the capital that they had from like regular people investing to buy more of that stock and push the stock value up, so that their venture capital oh, sure. stock would increase in value.
1: I see. That's shady.
0: Yeah it's a it's a conflict of interest uh, scandal. The only thing that sets them apart from. Other companies like them that do the same thing is their size. Like they are much bigger uh, than most of the other companies that do this. Um, however, the thing that I want to talk about today is something that they were real innovators in, uh, and in fact, created the market for in the United States. Uh, and it's around an issue that we've been talking about a lot, which is charitable giving. Uh so in 1991 uh Fidelity started Fidelity Charitable and it was the first um uh, it was the first modern version of what are called donor advised funds. Uh and so like from what I read this existed as like a concept and uh you know sort of like uh, maybe in a couple of, of remote areas of the economy since like the 1930s. But uh, as far as uh, I- I- like a an investor vehicle, it didn't exist until Fidelity invented it in 1991. So hmm. okay. here's what it is. Um, okay. Uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll, preface it by saying, you know, uh, if I were to ask you before we started this, what you thought the largest charitable organization was in the United States, my guess is that you would not say Fidelity Charitable. And in fact, my guess is that you probably never heard of Fidelity Charitable. That uh, would be correct. However, <laughs> I don't
1: know what I would have said, but it wouldn't have been that,
0: uh, you might have said the United way, which is, which was the biggest until Fidelity Charitable passed them uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, so bigger than the Red Cross, uh, 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 bigger than I know, think I anyway. would have
1: probably said the Koch brothers.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Okay. So so it doesn't count individual charitable givers. Um. And the Koch brothers are just dwarfed by by these larger organizations. Yeah. Fidelity investing, uh, or Fide- the the Fidelity charitable arm uh, of Fidelity is the largest receiver of charitable contributions in the United States. Uh, okay. Are they the largest? Uh, source of donations in the United States. That's a different kind of question, and that's what we're going to talk about.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's see where um, you're going with this. So,
0: I will say also that that Fidelity Charitable is not the only one of these donor advised funds that we're going to talk about. Uh, there are hundreds of them. Uh, some of them are big, uh, like Fidelity Charitable and the the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, which we will come up. Uh, and some are really small, working with only one or a few donors, uh, which matters. So,
1: so can you we break down like how this? Well.
0: What is it? what is it who's donor giving fund? money
1: to this yeah, yeah
0: so so i'm gonna I'm gonna go over it uh uh right now uh donor advised fund is a place where you can put your money if you want to donate to a charity but you don't know what charity you want to donate to so,
1: so like, you basically have no real charitable interests but some some kind of Motivation to donate for charity.
0: Well, maybe you do. So, like, let's say you know it's it's getting close to the end of the year, and you're like, I definitely want to donate this money to charity, but I don't have time to deal with it right now. And I want to donate to a bunch of charities, and like, you know, if I'm a rich guy, uh, I want to I want to you know put some, give some money here and give some there. Uh, I can't figure all that out right now. I'm just gonna park it in a donor advised fund, and then. You know, uh, maybe I hear about a charity or somebody I know is involved with a charity or something like that. You've
1: got it there and you can go and give it away.
0: Yeah. It's almost like a foundation. Okay. um, Except the difference is I don't have to run it myself, right? Like the the Fidelity or whoever will run it for me.
1: But you have to tell someone where you want the money to go. They're not just going to spend it without you directing them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So like- yeah, I, let's say I give my money to Fidelity Charity. They're going to hold on to it. And in fact, uh, they're going to invest it. Let's say I give them $10,000 and then they invest it. I will always have at least that $10,000 if I give them cash, right? Like at least that $10,000 to uh, donate. But if I let it sit there for a little while, it might grow to $11,000 or. So
1: my donor advised fund is going to appreciate over time. Even as yeah. Fidelity is making money on their end from investing it, too. It's like a little investment.
0: So, yeah, it is. And and that's and you're bringing up a, a good point and, and something that critics of donor advised funds point out, which is there's kind of an incentive for Fidelity to not encourage you to donate that money because they're able to play with that money and and collect fees. Oh, I and, see. Uh, and, and, and they can invest longer. It. All right, It gives them more assets under management, right? right? Uh, but there's also a disincentive for like me as the guy in, in putting the money in there to do it. And and it's not that much of a disincentive, but it's like, yeah, the longer I leave it there, the more money I have to give to charity. So, you know, there's no rush.
1: You oh, can't uh, take it no. back out once you put it in. Is that correct?
0: No, you know, you
1: can't. And so any any money that grows is just money that's going to go to charity.
0: Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Okay.
0: Um so that's that's sort of how they work but and and it doesn't really sound that bad right so there might be some mild disincentives to just like let the money sit in the accounts and not give out to charity um and and that's compounded by the fact that unlike a family foundation that is required by law to give out five percent a year um donor advised funds aren't, and like there are some weird like Uh, things that are internal to donor advised funds uh, that, you know, I think they mainly do for PR reasons. It's like, if you don't donate any of your money in five years, then they will make some small donations on your behalf without you telling them to. Right. And if you let it sit for 10 years, they'll make more donations. Okay. Um, and in fact, like the, the donor advice fund uh, funds, at least all of the big ones claim that they give out more than family foundations. They claim anywhere from like 12 to 20 percent, uh, is donated each year to, to various charities. However, uh, as, uh, investigative journalists and critics, uh, have pointed out, um, there is this, um, odd maneuver. That they're able to do, whereby uh, Vanguard is another big uh, uh, DAF uh, donor advised fund, and so like uh, one of the things that happens over and over is like Fidelity and Vanguard will both claim that they're uh, giving out all of this money, but actually what they're j- doing is just giving it to one another. Oh, right? so, weird. Like, yeah, how so, that, like How does that? The money well, is. I don't
1: want to get too in the weeds on it, but how are they even allowed to do that?
0: Uh, I was not able to um, find an explanation, so it's not illegal, right? Like uh, I was not able to find an explanation. But
1: I mean, for... Vanguard, Fidelity, these are not charities. So if they're giving, if Fidelity's giving money to Vanguard, and Vanguard, I mean, how, how does that qualify?
0: I I do not know. Um, but it, the largest recipients of DAF money are other DAFs every year. Oh, you're kidding! Um, oh,
1: so DAFs can no. give to DAFs. That's how it works. DAFs can give to DAFs.
0: Okay. And it helps a DAF to do that because then they can say that they're giving out a lot of money, even if they aren't.
1: Okay. So here's here's my big question. I feel like I kind of understand what a DAF is and sort of understand how it works. Why should I care at all
0: about DAFs? Because they're very ripe for abuse. There are some like scammy ways that you could use a DAF to self-deal. Okay, what's like, the
1: most simple and obvious way that you can scam a DAF, or use a DAF so, to scam it? Uh,
0: okay, so like the it, it, the most simple way, and you would get get busted for doing this, right? Like this uh, is not legal, right? But um, uh, according to to the reading that I did, the IRS is really understaffed and and uh, does not have the ability to track this stuff, and so people for all we know, could be doing it all the time. Um, but, but you know, one example, a DAF can give money to any 501c3, which is a nonprofit organization. So, any anything that is classified by the IRS as a 501c3. So, I could start, like, a charity for, I don't know, my local elementary school, right, that uh, uh, I want to help them out. And so, I start, like, a, a community 501c3. And then, like, I give that uh 50 i give a daf a bunch of money and then the daf gives that money to my charity now in that process of funneling it through the daf i my giving is anonymized right like the 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 dafs are not required to report uh whose money is going where uh and so i can effectively hide my identity as the main or only giver to this 501c3. Okay. And then I can get my charity to give out grants and fellowships to people like, I don't know, my kids or oh, my I see. wife, right? <laughs> and, and, uh, okay. Um, so that's very so I could do scammy. it that way. I could also just, be the person who runs the 501c3 and pay it to myself as a salary. Um, So that's illegal,
1: but it may not be regulated in all cases.
0: Yes. Uh, And of course, the reason that I would do that is because then uh, all of the money that I take out on the other end, whether it's a grant or fellowship or a salary, is uh, essentially Tax free. Right. Right. Like I I get that that money is is tax exempt because it is classified as 501c3 uh, charitable donations. Right. So So, give it away. I take the tax break whenever I give it to the DAF and then I just collect it and I end up just not paying taxes on that money. So like that, that's a sort of like conspiratorial, you know, like tax avoidance, like scam that people, people could pull and like likely not get busted for.
1: Basically, there's a 0% chance that no one
0: is doing that. Yes, yeah, there are definitely people who are doing stuff like that in the world somewhere. But like that's you know relatively insignificant. Those are bad actors. the The big potatoes or the big time uh, scam is like way more out in the open, and is just like something that uh, that Silicon Valley people have really uh, begun to do a lot uh, because it tends it's a very profitable thing to do uh, whenever you take a company public. Okay, break it down. Okay, so. The one thing to know is like DAFs don't just accept cash. So I can donate stocks and and that counts uh, as a tax break for the value of the stock when I donate it. A lot of the biggest ones, like the Silicon Valley Community Foundation and uh, Fidelity, they take cryptocurrency, hmm. they take real estate, they take art, you know, they take assets. Right. So that, you have to know that to understand this scam. I'm going to explain how this scam works through a non-fictional example of someone who did this scam, and and hopefully it makes sense. Um, uh, but this guy, uh, Nicholas Woodman, the uh, the GoPro CEO, uh, the guy who started GoPro, right. uh, was the subject of a New York Times expose. Um, and and I'm I'm really sort of piggybacking on the New York Times reporting from a couple of years ago on this. Um, but it is uh, still going on and, and really only growing. Okay, uh, What's So, the deal? Um, Okay, so let's say I have a business like GoPro uh, that I'm taking public. I do the initial public offering. There's a big run on the stock. Everybody wants it, right? Like uh, as we see happen over and over again, the price of the stock soars. Suddenly I'm super rich in terms of, The stock value that I own, because as the the founder of the company, I have I own a lot of stock. Maybe I own 51 percent of it. Right. Uh, It's it's a ton. And so all of a sudden overnight, I uh, have lots and lots more value on paper than I did before. And in the case of GoPro, the stock shot up to ninety five dollars was the high point. And when that happens, a lot of people are thinking, boy, especially maybe the founder, that seems overvalued. That that stock is definitely going to fall from that peak that it hit, right? And you have to kind of be able to identify like when the peak hits. And so you're going to have some, you know, financial experts working on it. But like, you want to watch out for when you think the stock is going to hit its peak. And as soon as it does that, you donate a big chunk of that stock to a DAF. Um, and so in the case of Woodman, he donated half a billion dollars of GoPro stock to the Silicon Valley Community Foundation right when it hit $95 a share. It was like the perfect time to donate because he gets to take a tax break on uh, all of the value of that. The entire half billion dollars becomes tax exempt money uh, uh, for uh, him, right? And so he ends up. If he holds on to it, he's going to be paying taxes on that half billion of dollars. But if you think that the stock over the course of say the next year is going to go way, way down, then you don't want to be paying all of that tax money on it, right? like you you don't want to here's but here's, have so, to but pay here's that my money.
1: question is the tax yeah. money that he would pay if he held on to it more than the amount that he's just giving away?
0: That's a good question, and I don't know okay. um but I will tell you this. They are able to claim an exemption on the entire, say, half billion dollars in this case, even if it exceeds the federal maximum uh, tax exemption that you can claim. So you can claim up to 50 percent of your gross adjusted income as charitable giving. So okay. like if I make $100,000, I can claim up to, and if I give it away, I can claim up to $50,000 of tax exemption. Right? Okay. Let's say I give away $75,000. So Though, am I not screwing myself because I can only claim up to 50% of my income as tax, uh, uh, tax exempt. Uh, no, you're not because you're allowed to roll it over into the next year. So I can claim that last 25% of my income as tax exempt the next year. And this is true. Right. If you're so, giving
1: money to a DAF or any other charitable organization.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, uh, Uh, That is true. Right. Um, But the advantage of the DAF is that the reporting on their charitable giving, uh, the requirements for how much they have to give away uh, are much, much looser than they are for any charity or any foundation. And also uh, they anonymize the person. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if his stock tanks and goes to zero in five weeks, he still gets Public credit for giving half a million dollars to charity, right? <laughs> like, you, he you know.
1: still could have sold the stock for its full value and had that money in his pocket.
0: He could have. I think one of the problems with that is that if a founder sells off a massive chunk of a company immediately after it goes public, <laughs> the, the the stock itself is just going to tank, right? And, but if he and puts even if he puts money
1: into a DAF, people are also going to take note of that.
0: Yeah, and and I guess I guess the hope is they won't notice as much. But yeah. it turns out that they did notice because as soon as he did that, the f- stock fell fourteen percent, and because uh, like they figured out what he was doing, right? And the stock just kept falling, and it fell to uh, today. It's at five dollars and eighty cents. Uh, but at the time of the writing of the article, it was six dollars. Right? How so happy it, would it, you it, be
1: if you sold at ninety five? A whole shitload of it.
0: Yeah, I'm very happy, you know, especially like, you know, if I got to claim a, ta- a charitable tax exemption for uh, half a billion dollars, <laughs> even if that ended up only being worth one eighteenth or or whatever the math is or, of that amount. Right? Um, Pretty sweet. So like if I know the stock's going to go down, it's like I, I'm only benefiting myself by giving it away, right? Like because the, the value that the stock ends up at is way lower than the tax break that I'm going to get. Uh, from it. So like yeah, there's a gamble involved, right? Like you're gambling that the stock is not going to keep going up and that it's going to lose significant value. Um but, but like But
1: so let's say you're not the CEO of the company. You're left with a different kind of dilemma cuz he doesn't want to do a huge sell-off of his holdings because that'll signal to the market that he doesn't believe in his in his company. Yeah. In a more pronounced way than it would if he gave his money away to a deaf. But then what if you're just some other wealthy investor who's been buying up GoPro shares and you're left with the same dilemma? No one's really looking at you in the same way that they're looking at the CEO or founder. Yeah. Um,
0: I, yeah, I mean, I don't know, like I, this stuff is, you know, so I, I want to remind the listener at this point that we are not financial experts and we are, we're we're sort of taking you on a journey of learning about this stuff (laughs) with us, right? Like I, I had never heard of DAFs before, like five days ago. Right. And so like, I'm, I'm learning about this stuff and, and really the, you know, the way that the, uh, the tax exemption laws work Uh, I only understand it like a really zoomed out and general way. Like it's clearly a way for Silicon Valley people to make a lot of money, but it it remains like a little bit fuzzy to me how, how that, that operates. If this podcast turns Um,
1: out to be what we want it to be, I can imagine in like two years getting a DAF expert on here and being like, remember episode 10, we're going to actually figure this one out. But yeah.
0: Yeah, that would be great Um, because I feel like somebody could explain it to me uh, uh, more clearly. (laughs) You know, I'm pretty dense. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to get get things to stick in my brain. Um,
1: Anyway. Yeah, this is a.
0: But anyway. okay, so like that, that is um, so a large part of what is wrong with DAFs is that people use them for tax avoidance and they they dump assets into them uh, that aren't worth what they say they're worth or what they get appraised at or whatever and then they're able to take larger tax breaks and, and
1: if you, and you do if you equipment. if you're fancy enough with the math it can just turn out yeah. to be an absolute win basically
0: yeah and so like in well well for the the person not for any charity because right. in in Woodman's case <laughs> the New York Times found uh and and they emphasized the thoroughness of their investigation uh only a single donation to the Bonnie Dune Art, Wine and Brew Festival. <laughs> um and,
1: and this is, out of a half a billion dollars? Yeah. He gave yeah, to he yeah. gave it to a booze <laughs> festival.
0: <laughs> just I mean, just like a little bit. It wasn't even a big donation, right? And uh and like nobody knows what happened to the rest of it. And and they're really, you know, like there's only, you know, it's only like seven percent or so of what it originally was, but like still Who was managing the staff? The Silicon Valley Community Fund, okay. uh, which a lot of tech people, uh, in fact, our friend Jan Coombe uh, used it as uh, well. Good old Jan Coombe and his Porsche collection. Like lots and lots of people are specifically using this particular DAF to uh, dump large amounts of assets in. OK. And so that's that's a bad thing, right? Like and that that is a big time tax avoidance issue uh, that uh, legislation needs to address. Um, but. There's a whole other dimension to this that's also really bad and uh, th- that is, is more sort of ideological than, than financial, which is, if you remember, uh, you can anonymize giving with DAFs. And as Fidelity very proudly proclaims on their in their marketing materials for their DAF, you can give to any 501c3. So anything that has made it through the process of uh, the irs's uh, 501c3 designation can can be uh, a recipient of uh, anonymous funding and so like uh, as one article i read pointed out uh there are at least 55 tax-exempt organizations listed on the southern poverty law center's list of hate groups right um and so wow you know yeah like Anybody, literally anybody, can anonymously give to hate groups uh, through a Wow,
1: that's pretty troubling.
0: Most think tanks are also classified as 501c3s. Uh, so if, like, you know, the Koch brothers or the Mercer family wants to give loads of money to the Federalist Society or some other uh, libertarian or ultra-conservative group, they can do so without, uh, you know, their foundation having to report it, or uh, the charity or the the five hundred one c three itself having to report I it. See. Uh, they can just anonymize the flows of money uh, using DAFs, right? And so and and they can also then claim those donations as tax exempt. Right. So like that's that's what that's like the maybe the icing on the cake that's that's so enraging is that you can give, give like, to a hate group and then it's, evil people can give to a hate group and then claim tax exemption for that money. Yeah. And so what that means is they're stealing from the public coffers. And so essentially we are footing the bill for people giving to like hate groups and and libertarian think tanks bent on undermining democracy (laughs) like that yeah it's a uh, they're really messed up in a lot of ways so that's about all i have to say about that.
1: well that was really interesting chad thanks for that uh that lesson
0: All right. Who are you talking about today, Joe? Well, the name that we drew
1: off of the roulette from our random billionaire generator last week was Maggie Hardy McGerko Okay. Uh, but as it turns out, Maggie Hardy Maguerco no longer exists. She's now Maggie Hardy Knox because she was divorced uh, in 2017 and it's just recently been remarried. Uh-huh. So we're talking about Maggie Hardy Knox in the court filing for her divorce with Peter McGerko It says that the, the the marriage is, quote, irretrievably broken, <laughs> <laughs> which is interestingly the precise language that her father, Joe Hardy, used when divorcing his third wife back in 2007. Hmm.
0: Is it some sort of like state law that that's just like the normal language? I don't know, man,
1: (laughs) but (laughs) it seems like a weird
0: law, right? Um,
1: Yeah, yeah, I doubt that it's a state law. It's probably just like common practice and the family is just streamlined the divorce process. Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) They've done it so many times. They just
0: have a standard form.
1: (laughs) Well, so the deal with Joe Hardy's third divorce. It was at the time he was 84 years old, and his wife, Kristen Georgie, was 23. Oh boy!
0: <laughs> Wait, how old was he? 84. Isn't he? Didn't uh, he start 84 Lumber?
1: That's interesting. He did start 84 Lumber. Yeah, maybe
0: he was like, "This is a sign. It's time to start a, a new chapter in my life at age 84." <laughs>
1: well, yeah, that chapter lasted four months. <laughs> 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 All right. <laughs> Their wedding was in Las Vegas and they were divorced 4 months later. <laughs> hmm.
0: no um, Maybe they rushed into that one.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was complicated. There's a funny there's a funny news clip of them reporting on because it was sort of scandalous in the lo- These are Pittsburgh people, by the
0: way. Oh really? I didn't so, know that. Yeah, I remember yeah, uh, so at you... the end of the last show I was like, "Oh yeah, I grew up with 84 Lumbers, uh but yeah. I don't see them where I live now."
1: Yeah, well, they're from your neck of the woods. And in the local Pittsburgh TV, there was a segment about this scandalous marriage and divorce. And they've got this guy on the street, and they're asking his opinion about the relationship between this 84-year-old and the 23-year-old. And here's what he has to say. Age difference doesn't bother me as long as they were happy. But apparently they weren't. Uh, yeah, but apparently they weren't. That's marriage. it. That's all I wanted to share. I uh, thought that was pretty choice. Yeah, that was amazing.
0: Well, you know, as long as they're happy, where well, they weren't happy. Well, <laughs>
1: <laughs> so while I'm on the subject of. Uh, Maggie's dad, Joe Hardy's divorce. I, I'll just say a couple of words about Joe Hardy because he was the founder of this company, 84 lumber. That is the source of the family fortune and which Maggie has inherited. I'll I'll just sort of float out a few like interesting tidbits about this guy. Yeah. So I don't know if you knew that this was a thing. This was news to me. A couple of decades ago, he purchased a British royal title. Like Duke of something? Lord of the Manor Henley and Arden. <laughs> <laughs> which at some point he gave to his his daughter, Robin Hardy Freed. So, but I found in an article from 2003 s- detailing a whole rack of royal titles that this family has acquired. <laughs> so like uh, Maggie's husband at the time, Peter McGearco, is or was maybe still is. I don't know. Lord of Roscria County Tipperary Irish Republic. <laughs> Maggie was the Countess of Carrick County Waterford Irish Republic. <sighs> Catherine Hardy Drake is the lady of the Fief de Anneville I mean, and there's more, there's a, there's, there's several more, um, but I didn't realize that this was a thing that people just did in America. Did you?
0: No, I didn't. Uh, when did they do it? Was it like way back in the day or was it like, uh.
1: No, I mean, it was like in the nineties or something or in the early on. I don't know. Yeah. It's something that you can still do. I, I think I read a Forbes article about a guy who did it just for fun.
0: Is it um, like, uh, like when you buy someone a star in the sky uh, for their birthdays? Oh yeah, I don't checking it out right now. Like yeah, it seems like a pretty nineties thing. I guess they auctioned them off.
1: Yeah, uh, so I think like Joe Hardy became a big benefactor in the town where he was a lord. Oh hell, hell, okay, hell, the so lordship.
0: so basically this is like selling naming rights to a stadium. They just auction off lord and ladyships.
1: <laughs> yeah, but it's Lord people. and Ladyships. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which just seems like crazy. I mean, we could probably have a good segment on the show at some point. Just shit that billionaires do, you know, or did. I mean, yeah. like acquire ac- acquire lordships. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So the same year of Joe Hardy's divorce to the 23 year old Kristen Georgie. He had a birthday party where Christina Aguilera serenaded him.
0: <laughs> you know, Christina Aguilera is also from Pittsburgh.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. it's
0: a major source of pride for for the area.
1: Okay. Well, that makes a certain <laughs> amount of sense. But I don't believe Robin Williams is, who also performed. Uh, no, I don't think so. So, I don't know. Perhaps it's unsurprising then that at what point he, uh, Joe Hardy appeared on the show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous.
0: Oh, wow. I would love to see that.
1: So anyway, Joe Hardy started this company, 84 Lumber, in 1952. He turned it over to Maggie in 1992. Apparently, there was a succession drama, as is often the case in these super wealthy family business situations. He passed over his two eldest sons, to oh. appoint Maggie president of the company.
0: Are they big fuck uh, ups? What's some, Like what's
1: I don't. The- I don't really know. You know, he, he. All I could find was that he bought out their shareholdings at a very generous price, and sort of let them go from there. Like, I don't know what is going on with this family because, as usual, there's not a lot of information about a lot of these people. Apparently. Joe Hardy has seven kids. Hmm. The source of that is (laughs) celebritynetworth.com. So so I don't necessarily know how accurate that is. But, you know, I heard references to a lot of these people, but Maggie's the only sort of public persona. Um, Hmm. And so I don't really know. There's a couple of, like, articles back when this drama was unfolding or maybe after the fact, I think in the Wall Street Journal and other places, talking about how Maggie took the took the helm and uh, how that whole process transpired, but there's there's not a lot out there. So in any event, she takes over the company in 1992, which is the same year that she marries her first husband. Hmm. And then she has a kind of turbulent ride over the next couple of decades, especially in the mid aughts or mid to late aughts, uh, in the financial disaster moment around 2008. 84 Lumber was really in a lot of trouble. And apparently Maggie pulled some really kind of risky moves, uh, kind of analogous to what Francis Ford Coppola did when he was shooting Apocalypse Now. You know, the, the whole like production was spiraling out of control and he had to put up like a, 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 a big percentage of his own personal fortune to keep the production going and he sort of risked everything to make the film and it turned out to be okay similarly Maggie like put up a bunch of her own money bet her life's savings to try to reinvent 84 lumber and make it profitable again and she did and so a few years later it was worth a couple of billion dollars which is kind of where we are now. So what I thought I would do for this episode is I thought I would give you like three miniature viewing assignments for All these right. different videos that I found online that I think will be interesting to think with as we're trying to get to know uh, the the Hardy family and, and maybe Maggie in particular. Um, right. And since you haven't seen any of these videos, we'll stop the recording. You'll go watch it and then we'll come back and we'll talk about what, what we've seen. But I guess for each video, I'll do a little bit of introduction before I send you on your way to go, uh, into your private screening mode. <laughs> um, <laughs> is that cool
0: with you? Yeah, that makes sense to me. And, and, uh, we'll put the links in the show description so that, uh, if people want to watch them, uh, they can do so.
1: Okay. So the first thing that I'm going to have you go watch is a Super Bowl ad from 2017. And this is like probably the thing that's generated more publicity for 84 Lumber than anything else. And maybe the history of the company, <laughs> it was a big, like, media event a couple of years ago. I wasn't aware of it at the time, or if I was, I've since forgotten about it, but yeah, I don't think I've I a paid...
0: vague recollection of this. I, I, I'm i okay. not sure if I've seen the video, but like, uh, yeah.
1: So like, as we've talked about a million times before, the Wikipedia pages entries for billionaires are just super lean, like a, most of the time, or a, a, a remarkable percentage of the time. Uh, and with like Maggie's Wikipedia entry, you know, like maybe a third of it is just devoted to the Super Bowl ad. All <laughs> you know, right. so, it's, um, so it's a Super Bowl ad that addresses the topic of immigration head-on, but does so in just a really weird way. Uh, right. <laughs> and the only other thing I'll, I'll tell you, Chad, before you watch this before you watch this ad is that I'm letting you watch the full five-minute version of this commercial. <laughs> All right. What what originally aired was, I think, a 90-second version of it. It was essentially a version that was censored by Fox because they thought the ending was too controversial. Okay. And so I think when it originally aired, they showed the 90-second version, and then they directed people to their website, to the 84 Lumber website or YouTube page or something. So. That's all I'll say. I want you to go watch it. I'll watch it again, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Sound
0: good? All right. Send me the link.
1: Okay. So we're back. You've had a chance to watch the video. Uh, Can you just explain to our listeners, in a few words, what it is that you experienced?
0: Um, okay. I'll, I'll just, let me summarize what De- happened. Describe the video. Yeah. Summarize the video. Okay. So it's a, it's a mother and daughter, um, in a, uh, an unidentified, uh, locale. One imagines it is a South American country. Um, uh, they are traveling, uh, North, uh, on foot and by truck and then by train. They're immigrants. Right. They're immigrants. And I said South American country because, I mean, it, it seems to like it suggests that it's a very, very long journey. Right. So, like, <laughs> they're, they're uh,
1: immigrants. It's a mother and daughter on a long immigrant journey north.
0: That's a good way to put it. Yeah, much more succinct than uh, than my explanation. Um, and. Uh, along the way the daughter is collecting uh scraps of trash and putting them in her backpack and you kind of see her like starting to sew them together uh, at, at moments um and then uh, uh are we being asked to feel sympathy with this mother daughter combo during oh, this yeah, time oh yeah 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 uh we're we're definitely uh in, it's it, it, the ad intends us to identify with the mother and the daughter there's a lot of You know, there's a close relationship between them and, um, you know, we see how much the music is sort of inviting
1: us into their emotional situation.
0: Yeah. Um, and then, um, after a while, I guess there's a, you know, the, once they get to, uh, the desert, um, on the border between the U S and Mexico, uh, it gets the, the journey gets a little tougher, right. And they are, you know, thirsty and sunburned. Um, it's probably about this
1: time that we randomly start intercutting to people doing construction work. Oh yeah. I forgot
0: about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, along, along this journey they're yeah, they're, um, uh they yeah they cut in to people building something and we don't see what they're building I mean you know uh, uh in fact you know I I knew that it had something to do with lumber right uh, but but <laughs> I imagine if you're watching this for the first time you wouldn't know that right like there's no up until this point there is no indication of what this is about right it's basically a short film about a mother and daughter immigrating to the United States yeah uh and then the the uh, the ad kind of culminates in uh the mother and daughter daughter finally getting to the border and uh there's a giant wall and it's like 20 feet high and made of concrete and uh and they're just
1: stopped dead in their tracks it's a huge wall
0: the mother starts crying the daughter is kind of trying to comfort her and and to help comfort her she pulls out the uh what she had been sewing out of the scraps of trash that she'd been picking up along the way and it turns out that it was an american flag um, so it's this kind of like small and tattered American flag that she shows her mom to try and cheer her up. Um, and right when she does that, the mom spots, I don't know how she didn't notice this before, because like the wall is it's like, you know, it's the, like the wall in, in Game of Thrones. It's like this massive edifice is, you know, but like maybe like five feet to their left. Somehow they didn't notice there's a giant door. <laughs> And <laughs> made of lumber <laughs> and the door. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's the time, like, that's the only place. And, and again, if you didn't know that this was an ad for lumber, I don't know if you would know that, but like. So um, it's a concrete la- wall. Yeah, it's a concrete and wall. And that's with bad. A door it's foreboding of- and cold and, uh, and makes people cry. Right. And, and then they see the door and it's made of this kind of warm lumber <laughs> and there's light shining through it and they start to smile, and then they they walk up to the door, and and they go through it at the end, right? Like, Yep, that's that yeah. that's the end. So, um,
1: thanks, Chad. That was a really detailed and and lovely description. <laughs> uh, I of don't the know Super what Bowl ad from twenty seven. Okay, so let's talk about what it meant. That's what that's what we have to get get talking about right now. So this caused a tremendous controversy. Um, interestingly, you know, so the Hardys. Maggie's a Trump guy, you know, Uh these are right wing people, but a lot of people on the right, when they first saw this commercial, read it as a pro immigration commercial. And so there was like all of these people on the right who were like up in arms. And- I think
0: it's hard not to see it like that, right? Because I it, 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 like, you know, I've only watched it once, but there is <laughs> there is like there's one white guy who is featured. Uh, He's one of the construction workers. Um, and he, he sort of exists outside of, uh, he, he's like the foreman or something. It looks like, uh, yeah. but most of the laborers, right. Uh, the, the foreman is white, but most of the laborers, uh, are also clearly are immigrant laborers. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. and, uh, um, and so it, it, it's hard for me to not read it as a kind of pro immigration, like, you know, immigrants build America kind of message. Right. Uh,
1: but it's also very pro
0: wall. Wait, is, you see it as pro wall. Okay. I saw the wall as this kind of. Well.
1: It's absolutely okay. pro wall. It's like we're <laughs> building a wall with a gate.
0: Right, right. But, uh, you know, uh, to like, I, I'm trying to like imagine it from the point of view of 84 Lumber. So it was like. The wall is good because there's a gate in it and some people can go through the gate. But the thing is, I mean, they were still crossing the border um, as undocumented immigrants, right? Like, so they weren't... um, But
1: wasn't wasn't the gate symbolic of some kind of...
0: Oh, like like a legal citizenship (laughs) process. (laughs) Okay, I guess so. I don't know. I I guess I was looking at it in a kind of more abstract way, whereas like lumber was, uh, you know, the symbol of people working together and the wall was a symbol of... uh, you know, like the wall is a fence and the, the concrete is a fence and the, the lumber is a door. Right. So like lumber means working together and concrete means separating ourselves. But I that's didn't, interesting, I didn't, too. I didn't know that they were big Trump people. Right. Like I my I guess the way that I think I read it, like uh the people who didn't like the ad who are on the right read it, which is that um the wall like doors are good and walls are bad. I, I guess that was the sort of read that I got.
1: Yeah. That, I mean, I, which is a totally valid reading. I guess the, the takeaway for me is that it's just a very confusing advertisement. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's like, yeah, it's okay. it, it requires all kinds of unpacking and it's kind of, it's just highly unusual. I don't, I don't know what the takeaway is.
0: Still, I, yeah, I mean, maybe know? I think maybe like now that I'm sort of reflecting on it a little bit more, maybe my reading like I'm reading it in the the context of an advertisement for lumber <laughs> I think that but but you do you see it as more of sort of addressing uh the political situation around immigration? my
1: reading of the ad was, we should have a wall, there will be a gate, good people will be allowed through that gate, and Lumber oh, okay. is great for everyone.
0: Oh, uh, I get it, and that's why there's no men in the ad, right? Like that, it's a mother and a daughter, and so the they're uh, they are the symbols of like desirable immigrants, right? Like they're not MS13 members, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, so like, right, no, okay, right, yeah, yeah exactly. I, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah, I can, I, yeah, that I think that reading is also valid, right? Like,
1: um, right, but there's there's valid readings that are in fact contradictory, and it's like by the time you get. To the point where you're gonna spend money on a Super Bowl ad. It's- <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Give I mean this highly ambiguous, overdetermined <laughs> yeah. political message for millions of dollars that also does not mention a company.
1: <laughs> it's just bizarre. It's just really weird. So, okay. The next screening assignment I have for you, Chad, is a much shorter one if you want it to be, because the video is four minutes, but I'm only asking you to watch the first two minutes. Um, And what this is, is a promotional video for the Nemecolon Resort. Being from the Pittsburgh area, are you familiar with Nemecolon?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Nemecolon Woodlands. Uh, And in fact... It has recently uh, gotten some national notoriety because uh, a season of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, I can't remember which one it was, but uh, one of the either The Bachelor or The Bachelorette filmed there. That's interesting. I did not know that. So,
1: Joe Hardy originally purchased this resort back in the late 80s in a bankruptcy sale. It was previously a hunting lodge, mm. and Maggie took over leadership in uh, the year 2000. But before I say too much else about what this resort is all about, I want you to look at the first two minutes of this promo video. Come back, describe what you see, and we'll unpack it for everyone. All right, so we're back, Chad. Just describe what you saw in the <laughs> opening minute or so of this uh promo video for Nemacolin yeah, Woodlands well, Resort. you know,
0: I've never been to the Nemacolin Woodlands, um, and it's, you know, and it, uh, it had more than I thought it did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it started out with a zoo. I didn't know they had a zoo, and there's a lot of cute animals there. Um, they were feeding a bear marshmallows <laughs> from a stick, which seems, uh, I didn't know that, I've never done that. I didn't know you could do that anywhere. But, um, <sighs> But uh, You know, it's very nice. And then there's like swimming pools. And uh, and then it goes to like, you know, like when you have a shotgun and you like break it in half, you know, like you, you to put the bullets in to put the shotgun shells in. So like it's like a close up of the holes where the shotgun shells go in the bullet and then the guy puts the gun back together and like fires it and uh and then we're sort of in a whole different world and you you suddenly see like a tactical SWAT team (laughs) storming through the woods in like all black with black hoods and goggles and they start shooting at each other and then you realize it's paintball but it's still Very disturbing. (laughs) Um, Like, it's like, it goes from this like idyllic scene of like the woods oh people are like riding those little they're riding little zip lines and there's kids having a good time and then there's like <laughs> a team of adult men in in, in head <laughs> to toe in black in tactical, carrying, assault in tactical gear, gear <laughs> carrying assault rifles it's like a terrorist cell <laughs> that's what it feels like honestly it feels like, like a terrorist look- cell has invaded the commercial <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's like these these cute bears eating marshmallows, these lovely lions, and now the assault squad. <laughs> <laughs> uh okay, all right. I thought that was fun. Um we'll link to that. The final thing that I'm going to have you look at is the most difficult for me to talk about for reasons that we will talk about after you watch this short film what i'm about to send you chad is a link to what i guess was a a thesis film made by maggie's son pj magerko ah. who went to uh nyu Tisch. i think this is an undergraduate thesis film it's called beyond the backyard i'm gonna have you watch it and then we'll come back to talk about it Okay, Chad. So now that you've seen the film, what I'd like you to do is describe for the <laughs> listeners what it is that you saw without making any evaluative statements. Aww. Just describe the film in you know thirty to forty-five seconds.
0: Okay, I'll see if I can. Uh, I'll see if I can do this. Uh, the protagonist of a film is a little boy, maybe like seven or eight years old and uh he kind of like interacts vaguely with his family, none of the ki- ca- there you know like there are a bunch of characters. oh boy, this is really hard to describe none nobody talks none <laughs> of the characters have any dialogue um so first of all, there's a there's voice a voiceover there's a voiceover that's done
1: entirely in rhymed couplet
0: yes, uh yeah, and like very very bad well i shouldn't I'm trying not to- yeah, evaluate trying not to evaluate um. Uh, let's just say like very, uh, rudimentary, um, like that's still a value card, uh, rhymes couplets. And, you know, this kid like is running around in a little, uh, like little Lord Fauntleroy, you know, kind of fancy lad suit and interacting with his family and everybody's happy, uh, for some reason, he he starts talking about witches about five minutes in, and uh, that never really goes anywhere. It's mainly just sort of him. It's like a love letter to his family. Eventually, <laughs>
1: okay. So let's let's back it up. What we're dealing with is pure autobiography, nonfiction, yeah.
0: in rhyme, not couplet. like inferred nonfiction. He like uses his family's names, like his. The billionaire that we're talking he about cuts in home Maggie, videos. Yeah, he cuts in home videos of himself and and Maggie, the billionaire under discussion today, Uh stars in it. Based
1: on this conversation, it's impossible to understand what what this movie is all about. People are going to have to click on the link and go.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's <laughs> no describing it. Other like there, it, it, nothing happened. It's
1: a highly stylized like love letter. Yeah, to himself and his family.
0: If I had to like write a synopsis of it, right, it would be. um Film student makes high budget, uh, love letter to his family who he loves very much. Like that's, that's sort of all that happens. He's sort of like just describing individual members of his family. But the, the funny thing about it is that meanwhile, like there's a hot air balloon. There's a, a, like right. a merry-go-round. Like there, like, right. Uh, I believe there is even a crane it's a big, shot it's a at big one budget. point. Like, <laughs> like yep. it is a, it is a high <laughs> oh. budget 15 minute, uh,
1: oh, it's it's clean, yeah. it's clean, and it's <laughs> like shot, fancy, yeah, so here's the trouble that I'm having. you know i'm a I'm a professor. I teach film classes. I teach undergraduate film students who are making work all the time. I remember what it was like to be an undergraduate film student. What I'm wrestling with is this: I am not a fan of this film, <laughs> <laughs> but it's an undergraduate film project. The kid is learning he's experimenting regardless of the fact that he is a billionaire's son
0: i get yeah like i get is what it you're okay. saying like oh should is we... it okay
1: for us to eviscerate this film
0: yeah and uh and you know i think probably not like i think at the at the level of like the voiceover narration like yeah i mean he's a he's um young but like i think that it's still sort of worth watching and uh and worth making fun of because you get to uh, see Maggie,
1: Maggie riding horses a lot in slow motion.
0: Right. Like the way that it presents the family. I mean, it is it is uh so like it's fantastically out of touch. Like it's just amazing. The entire family is like and he gets the entire like, you know, brothers and sisters and like, you know, parents. Even the ninety 90- five-year-old granddad and so they're all riding this like golden merry-go-round and they're dressed in like furs and top hats and like all this ornate jewelry right like like, it's so like it's so strange um I, i don't know if i have anything to say about it like it doesn't make any sense except as like um a a gift that a child would give to a family like it's basically like a like a sort yeah. of child's drawing that says, like, I love mommy. Right. Like he calls her his best friend. That's a generous reading. And, like, yeah. And, and like it, it does. it's not clear what else it's doing. Uh, I imagine it costs a couple million dollars to make, right? Like
1: that. <laughs> it didn't cost a couple million dollars, but it, it cost tens of thousands of dollars.
0: Yeah. You know, it, it was, that was, it was very weird. Uh, it was incredibly boring, uh, to watch. Like one of the, one of the most boring things I've ever seen, <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> and we really encourage you to click the link and watch the film if you want to get a fuller sense of what this family is all about. it seems about. like so it's right, going PJ, like, I, we don't mean to be too harsh. it seems
0: like it's going like, somewhere at the beginning you- it's like he's like uh because there's this like like this foreboding you know moment where he's like uh other children got stitches but i preferred to play with and then there's like a five minute pause and he goes witches and uh but that doesn't come it No, just, and then it just disintegrates. Yeah. And then like his mom comes riding in on a horse and he's like, she is my best friend. And, um, you know, I never want this. Here's to what end. I'll say. PJ,
1: think about doing another undergraduate degree at Beloit College, <laughs> where we'll put this through a process. <laughs> and by the time you come out of this program... That film will be fucking awesome. That's my promise to you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like I mean it like it would be an amazing film like with a like with a couple of small tweaks if it was if the if the audience could get the idea that what it what it was doing was sort of making fun of the emptiness and out of touch of uh, rich people. Then like, then it would be like a, a biting social commentary. Right. But like, I mean, yeah, he didn't have that perspective. No, yet. I mean, these people are like dripping in diamonds and, and fur <laughs> while they ride a golden <laughs> go round and smile and laugh. And like their, their, their laughter becomes kind of like menacing and weird, but I, I don't think it's supposed to, Uh, but it, like it, yeah. it does feel that way. It's, it's, it's really strange. Uh, that's a great description. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So
1: that's the family. That's all I have worked out for us today. Hopefully that was fun and interesting in certain ways.
0: Yeah. I would suggest, I, I you know, I don't know if I suggest watching the 15-minute film. You should check it out. Skip through it. Uh, but you should watch the 84 Lumber uh, Wall commercial because that is a the Super Bowl is a really yeah. crazy thing. Um,
1: yeah, go check out the links.
0: Time to pick the billionaires for next week, I think.
1: Yeah, that it's about that time.
0: Uh I'm opening up my random selection machine and
1: okay, let's spin the spin the wheel.
0: Okay, the first one is Herbert Simon of the Simon Property Group also, goddammit, owns the Indiana Pacers. <laughs> Every single one of these people <laughs> owns a sports team. <laughs> Everyone. Okay.
1: Well, we we know how to deal with this. All right. That's Indiana cool. Indiana Pacers. Owns the Indiana Pacers. Okay. All right. Uh who's next? Number two
0: is Ira Rennert. American investor and businessman, famous, very much like our friend Michael Milken, who keeps coming up, famous for junk bonds. Uh, So he is another guy who is involved in the whole world of junk bonds. So what is that guy's Uh, name? Ira Rennert. R E N N E R T.
1: Okay, so who do you want?
0: I'll take Ira Rennett. Uh, you know, I'm interested in learning more about junk bonds and about these sort of uh, financial things. I think I also had the last sports guy, so it uh, uh, looks like.
1: I, okay, so I forget the first guy again already Herb Simon. Uh, so you... Herb Simon. Yeah. All right, I'm Herb Simon. We're going to come back in two weeks with another great episode.
0: All right. Thank you, everybody.